Hi, this is Roy Showman, and you're listening to a podcast of my radio show on Radio Maria, Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism. Usually these podcasts are taken directly from the broadcast, but this show is a little bit different because the broadcast consisted primarily of the audio of a television show that I had done the preceding day for a local uh, local cable station in Massachusetts. And the content of the show was essentially that television show. But because that show was pretty close to an hour long, and we had a number of callers, for which I'm very grateful, call in during the show, I actually didn't have time to finish the recording of the entire preceding show on the radio broadcast. So that is what this podcast is. So I hope you enjoy it. You will be listening to a television show I did for a a series called Catholic Shepherd on uh, Salem, Massachusetts local television or Saugus, Massachusetts local television. And the topic was the role of Judaism between the first and second coming uh, based on St. Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 11. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to The Catholic Shepherd. I am your host, Rick DeSantis. I have back with me the one and only, the Mr. Roy Shulman. Um, awesome guy. He was a professor at Harvard. He is a Jewish fellow who is also a Catholic guy. I'm going to let him take over because I talk too much, and this is about you today. So where are we going today, my brother? Um, Okay, well, as you mentioned, sort of in the introduction, um, I am of Jewish origin. I hope that some of your viewers have seen the show I did with you earlier in my witness testimony. Um, I was born and raised very Jewish. Um, it's not Today's not the day to go through it, but I had an experience of Christ and I had an experience of the Blessed Virgin Mary, which left me no choice but to want to enter the Catholic Church. Having done so, I consider myself a Jew in the Catholic Church. Um, I consider myself still Jewish. I know that might sound counterintuitive to some people. But in fact, as far as I can tell, if Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, which of course he was, then why should I, a Jew, stop being a Jew by becoming a follower of the Jewish Messiah? It actually just makes me a Jew who's right about who the Messiah was. And it should actually make me more Jewish than ever. So I consider myself a Jew in the Catholic Church, which raises the um, very interesting mystery of, is that meaningful? Is there any meaningfulness to Jewish identity after, first of all, after the coming of Christ, and secondly, after entering into the Catholic Church? Um, Now, the meaning of Judaism and Jews leading up to the first coming of Christ is very apparent, if you stop to think about it, because, of course, God's plan for salvation from the very beginning, from the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, was that um, although he had originally created them in a state of um, intimacy with God, no death, no suffering, essentially in a state of sort of being in heaven from their creation for all eternity, when they chose to sin, that original exalted relationship between God and man was ruptured. But God knew from that very moment that at some point in the future, 
he would not only restore man to that original exalted state, but raise him infinitely higher by the incarnation of the second person of the Most Holy Trinity as a man at a future point in time. If the second person of the Most Holy Trinity was going to incarnate at a future point in time, it would be among a particular people at a particular point in time, in a particular place in the world, and even in the womb of a particular virgin. And, of course, that people would have to be prepared. They would have to be separated out from all the other people on the face of the earth for about 2,000 years to receive very special divine revelation so they could, first of all, know about the one true, uncreated creator God, to know about the creation of man, the fall of man, the seriousness of sin, the need for redemption, the future coming of a redeemer. They would have to be given enough prophecy over this extended period of time to um, uh, learn all of that and to learn to worship the one true God and to know enough about the redeemer so that they could identify him when he came they would have to be raised up to a state of um, morality or purity so that the incarnation wouldn't in itself be a sacrilege. And they would have to, if you excuse the expression, breed a virgin of such purity and nobility that she could give her flesh and blood to be the flesh and blood of the God-man when he came. And those people were the Jews. God chose them, you could say, at random from all the people on the face of the earth for the most important role ever given to any ethnic group, which is literally to bring salvation to all mankind or to enable the bringing of salvation to all mankind, to be more precise, through the incarnation of God as man. So that's the story of the Jews and Judaism between the creation of the world and the first coming of Christ. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then the... I mean, that's pretty obvious, I think, from a Catholic perspective, but then it becomes less obvious what about in between the first and second coming of Christ. Is there still any meaningfulness to Jewish identity and um, in this period between the first and second coming? Now, we know a lot of the answer to that from both the uh, Catechism of the Catholic Church and also from sacred scripture, which I will now go into in a moment. But first, I want to underline something because it is not something that everyone who should be aware of is aware of which is that the uh, coming of Jesus was not the creation of Jesus. That Jesus, in his divinity, is and was and always will be the second person of the Most Holy Trinity. That he he existed before time itself. He is um, consubstantial with the Father. He existed before the world was created. He existed... um, as long as God himself existed, because he is God. And so it wasn't, let's have Jesus be born and start everything. It's let's have the second person of the most holy trinity, let's have one of the three persons of God descend among man and take human flesh and blood and take on a human nature at some point in the future. Mm -hmm. And that was the incarnation of Christ. That's what happened about 2,000 years ago. It wasn't a start the story of Jesus. Um, It's important to underline that because it does get confusing. Sure. So anyway, so so then back to the present, so to speak, or at least back to the present period between the first and second coming. Um, uh, There are a number of various views that can be held about the meaningfulness or the role of Jewish identity in between the first and second coming. One view that could be held is there is no such meaningfulness at all. All meaningfulness went away 
the church replaced the Jewish people. The church are now the new Israel. And all of the promises made to the Jewish people, all of the difference between Jew and Gentile was wiped away with the coming of Christ. They, they served their purpose and it's now it's like, like they're an appendix on human history, like right, an right. unnecessary <laughs> organ that, you know, once had a purpose but no longer has a purpose and has just uh, effectively disappeared in any meaningful sense. Uh, Pope Benedict the uh, 16th actually addressed that very beautifully and explicitly when he said that can't be true because the Jewish people existed for 2,000 years as an identifiable ethnic group without a homeland, without a country, without a nationality, without a geographic concentration. That is a phenomenon unprecedented in human history. Um, and the fact that the Jews persisted for those 2,000 years as an identifiable group um, in itself shows that it's a mystery of God at work. Mm-hmm. So the mere existence of the Jews shows that it must have a, a role in um, salvation history yeah. still. Kind of uh, amazing that God would choose people that don't have a place to go, right? <laughs> I, think that, uh, I think that the way that I would look at that is that everything having to do with the Jewish people is, um, is a part of God's plan for the salvation of all mankind. And the fact that they had um, Israel and Jerusalem for 2,000 years, uh, from about 2,000 BC to about 70 AD, depends on how you want to look at it, 120 mm-hmm. AD, then they lost it for about 2,000 years, and then they got it back, is all part of the unfolding of God's plan, is all prophesied in Scripture, and all has to do with the three phases of salvation history. The first phase being leading up to the incarnation of God as man. By the way, again, just to underline that, the incarnation of God as man, the coming of Jesus, was by far the biggest event that ever happened in creation, bar none. Mm -hmm. Um, we, we We don't think of it that way, by and large, but the entire purpose of God creating the physical world, believe it or not, was to create immortal human souls to be with him for all eternity, to love him and be loved for him by for all eternity in heaven. That is the only reason for the stars and the planets and the moon and the laws of physics and everything else is to create immortal human souls for God. Everything else is going to pass away. The universe is going to pass away. The physical world is going to pass away. But every human soul who is created is going to exist for all eternity glorifying God, either glorifying his mercy and love in heaven or glorifying, God forbid, his justice mm-hmm. in damnation. Mm-hmm. But that is the purpose of everything. So we, we don't usually think of it that way, but everything, everything that exists just exists for the immortal human souls that God wanted to create for all eternity to be with him. Now, the biggest event in the history, I don't know how to put it, in the, the economy of the human soul was when the second person of the Most Holy Trinity incarnated as a man 2,000 years ago. Because at that moment, the divine nature and the human nature were merged in one person, in the person of Jesus. And for all eternity, the divine nature and the human nature are now merged together. As I believe it was St. Athanasius said, 
God became man so that man could become God. So, anyway, so back to what's this all got to do with the Jews? So, the, the um, role of the Jews leading up to the first coming is obvious, and it was to bring salvation to all of mankind to affect the greatest event in the history of creation, which is the incarnation of God as man. But then we're left with what now? Are they useless? Are they a useless appendage or what? There are several views that have been held at various points of history. One is, yes, they are a useless appendage and there's no meaningfulness at all. As I said, their continued existence in itself kind of casts a lot of doubt on that. Um, then there was St. Augustine's view that no, God made sure that they existed so to give kind of indirect proof of the New Testament, to kind of give evidence of the truths of Christianity by their existence. Uh, nowadays, we have another incorrect heretical view that's, uh, I think, particularly destructive, which is that um, it's known as the dual covenant theory, and it goes that there's no reason to evangelize the Jews. They don't need Christianity. They don't need Christ. They don't need to enter the church. They're still in their original saving covenant with God. And um, that's absolutely ridiculous for a number of reasons. One is, if I can be a little bit flippant about it, if Jesus had known that, he would have died of old age in bed because he was crucified for evangelizing the Jews, not for evangelizing the Greeks or whatever. As a matter of fact, when he sent out his disciples, he didn't say, uh, go nowhere among the Jews, go only to the towns of the Gentiles and to Samaria. He said exactly the opposite. He said, go nowhere, go to no towns among the Gentiles or Samaria, Samaria, go only to the lost sheep of Israel. So obviously Jesus was all about the conversion of the Jews. So how could it be that they don't need Jesus? Mm-hmm. Um, and finally, the final reason why that's nonsense is that the original saving covenant with God which was given to the Jews, requires animal sacrifice, which requires the temple in Jerusalem. And that temple hasn't existed since 70 AD. So even if God was willing to honor the original saving covenant with the Jews, the Jews haven't been able to honor it for about 2,000 years. So that theory is is nonsense. Um, There's another uh, theory. It's kind of the opposite side of the coin. One can think of the dual covenant theory as a kind of left-wing heresy off the truth, and then we have the right-wing heresy off the truth, which um, could be referred to as supersessionism or replacement theology, which goes that the Jews have been entirely replaced by the church, and therefore there's no meaningfulness to Jewish identity anymore. Um, however, the solution to all of this we can find in St. Paul's letter to the Romans, uh, mostly in chapter 11. So he lays out the tremendous um, beauty, and I don't want to say complexity, but the beautiful pattern of this mystery of the meaningfulness of Jews and Judaism in salvation history, in the economy of salvation, in between the first and second coming, leading up to the second coming, um, which we know as Catholics has a particular involvement of the Jews because we know from the New Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 674 says, quote, the glorious Messiah's coming is suspended at every moment of history until his recognition by all Israel, which is the church doctrine which has been held since the first of the church fathers, the apostolic fathers, that this second coming can't happen until there is a widespread, if you excuse the pun, I like to say wholesale conversion of the Jews, 
Um, and uh, again, that, that paragraph or that in the uh, catechism goes, the glorious Messiah's coming is suspended at every moment of history until his recognition by all Israel. It's so Jesus is hovering up there, just waiting to come again, and he is on hold until the conversion of the Jews, which will enable him to inaugurate the second coming. So I'll begin Romans 11 now. I'm just reading and see, uh, this is this is really Romans, this is really a New Testament, I completely kosher, 100% kosher. kosher I'm not Bible. making up any words, I'm not adding anything on my own. It'll sound a little bit scandalous. I am, by the way, dropping sentences. And one of the issues in reading St. Paul, and I think many of our viewers perhaps have, have tried to read the letters of St. Paul, is that he gets complicated because he's going down one path and then he'll go down a branch and then he'll go back to the main path. And so it can be hard to follow the logic. So the one liberty I take is I sometimes drop sentences that go a little bit down a side alley sure. in order to, to hold on to the main, main line of his argumentation. Romans 11, St. Paul speaking. To the Gentiles, by the way. I ask then, that's why it's called Romans, by the way. He's got, a le- you know, there's a letter to the Hebrews, that's well, to the Jews. Well educated. Letter to the Romans, no. to the um, non-Jews, to the Gentiles. And by the way, that's all Gentile means. All Gentile means is non-Jew. So the world in the days of the Old Testament are composed, the, actually, the, the Hebrew word that's translated as Gentile is nations. So basically, you have the nation of Israel, and you have all the other nations. And Gentiles just means all the other nations. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now, this is a very important statement because it's easy to see the movie The Passion of the Christ. It's easy to read the Gospels and say, look at what happened here. The Jews were given the most privileged role ever given to any ethnic group, which was bringing about the coming of the Messiah, Christ, Jesus. And boy, did they blow it. Because he came, and then they turned around and rejected him and crucified him. So if they were so unfaithful to God, so much betrayed God, of course God would wipe away, you know, wipe them off of his map, so to speak, and and throw away his promises to them. This was not an uncommon view, but we see here um, I, words of St. Paul, God has not rejected his people for whom he foreknew. Let me make a little digression there. It's easy to like see the passion of the Christ and say, boy, did the Jews ever blow it. But on a second look, it's obvious they didn't blow it, because what were they chosen for? They were chosen for to bring, ab- uh, to bring about the incarnation of God as man and to spread the gospel to the four corners of the earth after it happened. Now, the incarnation of God as man did come about. Jesus did come. And the gospel has been spread to the four corners of the earth. So by definition, the Jews actually succeeded in their task. There is this other side of the coin, which is their rejection of Christ, which is what St. Paul is going to talk about. But it's not fair to say the Jews failed. They succeeded or else there would not be two billion Christians in the world today. So... Um, I ask then, has God rejected his people by no means? I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And um, I'm going to skip to the end just to underline that, at the end of Romans 11. Um, as regards the gospel of 
As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the call of God are irrevocable. So later in the chapter, and I'll get to it in due course, St. Paul repeats this, that yes, as regards the gospel, they are enemies of God. In other words, they rejected the gospel, that's true, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. In other words, God is still honoring the promise he made to Abraham and to his seed forever. For the gifts and the call of God are irrevocable. Mm. So anyway, so that does away with, actually, it does away with the error of replacement theology right there in, in one chapter of scripture. Anyway, I've been, I've been talking about the mystery of Jews, Judaism, Jewish identity in the period between the first and second coming. Um, I kind of sweetened the pot a little bit by pointing out that we know that as the Jews had this tremendous role in the first coming, mm-hmm. they brought about, you could say, the first coming, um, Jesus incarnating as a Jew in the womb of a Jewish virgin, as an observant Jew, in fact. Um, uh, they also have this mysterious role in the second coming, at least indirectly, because we know as Catholics that the second coming can't happen until there is a widespread conversion of the Jews. Um, as I mentioned, we know that from the New Catechism, paragraph 674, quote, the glorious Messiah's coming is suspended at every moment of history until his recognition by all Israel. I'm just recapping a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, and then, uh, and then, the, um, uh, then the question is, okay, what's going on here? What about the Jews' failure to reject Christ? If they had this great role, and if they still have a role, why did they blow it when Jesus came? Isn't that a terrible thing that they did? In fact, I've been going through Romans 11 because St. Paul explains why, according to divine providence, according to the correct plan for the salvation of all of mankind, the Jews had to reject Jesus, that it wasn't entirely they their had failure. To and that's exactly where I got to in Romans 11. Mm-hmm. So this works out very well okay. in this little break. I had read the beginning of Romans 11, which says, essentially, uh, St. Paul is saying, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Even though the Jews rejected Christ, God did not reject the Jews. And then St. Paul goes on to say, and now I'm picking up again at verse 7 of chapter 11, What then? <clears throat> Israel failed to obtain what it sought. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that should not see and ears that should not hear, down to this very day. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see. So here it is in black and white. The failure of the Jews to recognize Christ wasn't entirely due to their own stubbornness and hard-heartedness and pride, but it was in itself part of God's plan. I'll just read those shocking verses again. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it sought. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that should not see, and ears that should not hear. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see. So, in some mysterious way, God veiled the eyes of the Jews so that they would not all follow Jesus Mm. when he came. Intentionally. Intentionally. Mm -hmm. We would really be up the creek without a paddle if St. Paul didn't go on and tell us why God did that. But thank goodness he does go on and tell us why. So I ask, have they stumbled so as to fall? By no means. But through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, 
how much more will their full inclusion mean? For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but light from the dead? So four times in just about three verses, St. Paul repeats the same idea. Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Their trespass means riches for the world. Their failure means riches for the Gentiles. Their rejection means the reconciliation of the world. Four times he says the Jews had to reject Jesus in order for salvation to come to the Gentiles, in order for the church to spread properly throughout the non-Jewish world, the Gentile world. Why is Paul saying this? What's Paul referring to? We know why he's saying this. When we look at the book of Acts, uh, I believe it's Acts chapter 15, we see the story of the Council of Jerusalem, the very first church council. It was about 51 AD. There was Church councils are called when there is an issue to resolve, a crisis, a theological issue that's in danger of sinking the church. That's when the uh, ecumenical councils are called. You know, was, for instance, was Christ one person or two persons required a council? Did Christ have one will or two wills required a council? These major theological issues. The first theological issue that was in danger of sinking the evangelization in the early church was the crisis which required the first church council, 51 AD, the Council of Jerusalem, and what was that burning issue that the, all the apostles had to return to Jerusalem to resolve? It was, are we allowed to let Gentiles into the church, mm. or is the church only for Jews? Now, you can see where this mistake came from, because Jesus was a Jew, the apostles were all Jews, the disciples were all Jews, the 3,000 who entered the church on Pentecost, the first Pentecost Sunday when St. Peter preached, were all Jews. Clearly, the church sprang from Judaism, it was the fulfillment of Judaism. Maybe you had to be a Jew to qualify for entry into the church. Sure. And if you excuse another pun, as I like to say, it would have, in the case of males, adult males, it would have required circumcision, so it would have had a terribly crippling effect on the early <laughs> church, to say the least. It would. Um, so, and as a matter of fact, St. Peter was on the wrong side of this equation. St. Peter was arguing, and we know he was the first pope, um, he would become the first pope. Who knows whether he was the first pope at that point? That's beyond me. Sure. But in any case, he was arguing, yes, the church is only for Jews, so if a Gentile wants to enter the church, they have to first sacramentally become a Jew, enter Judaism, convert to Judaism, and only then can we give them a membership card in the church. So that obviously would have been a terrible error for the church to go into and would have prevented the evangelization of the Gentile world. So all of the apostles were called back to Jerusalem. They had the Council of Jerusalem. Under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the Council determined that no, the church is open on an equal basis to Jew and Gentile. Hence, that, that um, verse um, that I quote frequently, uh, that basically in baptism there is neither male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Greek. Not meaning that there's no difference between a Jew and a Gentile, but meaning that all are members of the church on an equal basis once they're baptized, whether they are male or female, whether they're slave or free, or whether they're Jew or non-Jew. That was only determined at the Council of Jerusalem. Imagine, <clears throat> so imagine that problem which would have sunk the evangelization of the world 
And how was that resolved? It was resolved theologically by the Council of Jerusalem, but it was um, resolved practically by the failure of the Jews to enter the church. Because pretty soon, within certainly within four or five years, the church visibly was Gentile. Again, you read the letters of St. Paul, you read the Acts of the Apostles, St. Paul would go from town to town, he would first preach to the Jews, they would stone him, they would give him 39 lashes, they would leave him for dead, then he would preach to the Gentiles in that town, they would enter the church. Pretty soon the church was visibly Gentile, Mm -hmm. and therefore no one could make the mistake that Gentiles weren't welcome in the church on an equal basis. But... Imagine if the five million Jews around Jerusalem at the time of Jesus all entered the church, the church would have looked like Judaism, you know, what do they call version 2.0 of Judaism. Yeah. And it would have been very hard for it to be apparent that it was for Gentiles too. Mm-hmm. So that's obviously what St. Paul is referring to. Now, <coughs> now I'll repeat those verses a little bit because there's something else he introduces very interesting. So I ask, have they stumbled so as to fall? By no means. But through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Right? Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. That's what I talked about. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, that's what I talked about, right? Their failure meant riches for the Gentiles, enabled the church to go to the Gentiles. How much more will their full inclusion mean? In other words, if it was such an incredible grace for the whole world that the Jews rejected Christ, it must be an even greater grace when they receive him, when they accept him. And then he repeats the thought, for if their rejection means reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Mm -hmm. So, again, it's St. Paul talking, it's not me. If the Jews' rejection of Christ was this great gift to the rest of the world, to the Gentile world. Just imagine what a great gift their acceptance of him will be. It must, by logical inference, be even greater. And St. Paul says, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Now, there's something else we know about the second coming from the first catechism of the council, uh, first church uh, catechism from the Council of Trent in the 16th century also talks about what has to precede the second coming. And it says that one of the signs that has to happen before the second coming is what's referred to as great apostasy, the widespread falling away from the faith in the parts of the world which had previously been in the church. Um, And it's commonly referred to as great apostasy. And one of the scripture verses that they use to support the dogma of the great apostasy is when Jesus said shortly before the crucifixion, if men are like this when the wood is green, what will they be like when the wood is dry? So we have the picture of the green wood, like living wood, and the dry wood, dead wood, uh, being a picture of the great apostasy. So when St. Paul says, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? I think he's referring to that. And the picture that's being painted is as though Um, the church will fill up with Gentiles, and I'll get to where St. Paul says that. And then you'll have the great apostasy, this great falling away from the faith from among the Gentiles. And at that point, the Jews will enter the church and will be this last revitalizing force in the church to give it a new injection of life and then make the church composed of Jew and Gentile ready for the second coming. So I think that's what he's referring to when he says, if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? And I'm going to go on with Romans 11 now and support that rather radical assertion I just made.
Please do. No questions? From well, I have a million questions, but I'm not going to ask any. Just okay. We'll go from there. Okay. So then St. Paul goes into his um, image, central image of the olive tree of salvation, which is his picture of the church in between the first and second coming. He has his olive tree of salvation. The original cultivated olive tree was Judaism and the Jews. The, uh, it was planted in Judaism. The, the root and the trunk was Judaism. The original cultivated olive branches were the Jews, but some of those were broken off. Those are the Jews that failed to follow Christ. Um, I will now go back to Romans 11 and Please pick do. up with the image of the olive tree. Okay. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, a wild olive shoot, were grafted in their place to share the richness of the olive tree, do not boast over the branches. Okay, so some of the branches were broken off. Those are the Jews who didn't follow Christ. Mm-hmm. But you, a wild olive shoot, he's speaking to the Gentiles, uh, were grafted in to share the richness of the olive tree. That's the Gentiles brought into the church. Do not boast over the branches. Don't boast over the broken off, original cultivated olive um, branches. If you do boast, remember, it is not you that support the root, but the root that supports you. So the Gentiles in the church aren't supporting the olive tree of salvation. Again, it's not me talking, it's St. Paul. But uh, basically Judaism is supporting the entire Which is the root. Which is the root. Make sure we understand that, okay. You will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Ha, ha, ha. So you might be proud that you're so important they were grafted in. But do not boast over the broken off. Uh, so, uh, excuse me. Do not become proud, but stand in awe. Uh, for even the others, if they do not persist in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you have been cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? So this is the most potentially offensive part of this whole line of reasoning. And again, it's not coming from me, it's coming from St. Paul. So he's talking to the Gentiles. You're the grafted-in wild olive branches for which some cultivated olive branches were broken off to make room for you. If you're one of those grafted in wild olive branches, don't become proud and boast over the broken off ones. Ha, ha, ha. I'm more important than you. God broke you off. Remember, God has the power to graft them in again. And when he does, they'll be even better suited to the tree because they were originally part of that cultivated olive tree. I'm doing my best to follow along. And and you don't blame me for as being a Jewish chauvinist or something? No, heck no. Okay. Because again, just St. Paul speaking. So then St. Paul goes on to explain the mystery further. Lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brethren. A hardening has come upon part of Israel until the full number of the Gentiles come in, and so all Israel will be saved. And that is the verse that is the primary verse cited in the New Catechism to support the doctrine of the conversion of the Jews that has to precede the second coming. Lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brethren. A hardening has come upon part of Israel until the full number of the Gentiles come in. That'll be just before the second coming. And then all Israel will be saved. So this all has to take place according to Scripture. According to Scripture, it certainly seems like it. And as Catholics, I mean, we have another advantage, which is, we have the authoritative, revealed explanation of Scripture that's provided by the magisterium in dogma and in church-taught doctrine. So uh, Scripture can be very mysterious, it can be ambiguous, which is why um, 
I, 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 I bless and I'm grateful for every single one of our non-Catholic listeners. However, um, to be honest, there are different interpretations of scripture that are held by different Protestant denominations. Um, therefore, scripture is not entirely unambiguous, even among Christians of goodwill. Sure. As Catholics, we have the advantage of the unambiguous interpretation when it is given by the teaching authority of the church. And so we know that this is, is prophecy about the second coming. Um, <clears throat> going back uh, to Romans 11. So you're with me so far? I'm with you. I'm doing the um, best I can. Okay. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God. This is referring to the Jews. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. Very interesting. As regards the gospel, the Jews are enemies of God. They rejected Jesus for your sake, for the sake of the Gentiles, right? Because it was for the sake of the Gentiles that the Jews had to reject Christ. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the call of God are irrevocable. So, okay, you have to separate out the two. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God. Yes, they rejected Christ. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, unambiguous statement that the election of the Jews, whatever that means, has not gone away. That's still there. If I have time, I'll talk a little bit at the, uh, after I go through this about, about the implications of that. For the gifts and the call of God are irrevocable. Just as you were once disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience, so they have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may receive mercy. For God has consigned all men to disobedience, that he may have mercy upon all. Now, I know that there's a lot packed in there, uh, but bear with me and let me unpack it, because this is unbelievably beautiful. It is actually the reason why God arranged things this mysterious way, basically why God revealed himself to the Jews first, and then veiled his revelation to the Jews and revealed himself to the Gentiles, in the period of the church between the first and second coming. Mm -hmm. So Jews were in, Gentiles were out. Phase one. Phase two, Gentiles are in, Jews are out. Phase three, second coming. Um, Jews and Gentiles are both in. Mm -hmm. So why did he do this? Why did he have Jews in, Gentiles out, and then Gentiles in, Jews out, before Jews and Gentiles in? Please tell me. This is what St. Paul is going to tell us here. Um, just as you were once disobedient to God, that is the Gentiles, at the time that Jesus came, were disobedient to God, they were out of relationship with God. Just as you were once disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience. In other words, they have received the greatest mercy ever given to mankind, the entry into the church, because of the disobedience of the Jews. Mm -hmm. So they have now been disobedient. That's this period between the first and second, and the Jews are now disobedient. They're out of relationship with God because they rejected Christ and not in the church. They have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, in other words, by the Gentiles in the church, they also may receive mercy. Uh, for God has consigned all men to disobedience that he may have mercy upon all. You see, at the time Jesus came, the Gentiles were out of relationship with God, so when God brought them into the church, it was a sovereign act of the mercy of God. It was nothing they could have thought they deserved or earned. God wanted it to be apparent that salvation is a sovereign act of the mercy of God and not something we can earn. Mm-hmm. However, at the time Jesus came, the Jews were in relationship with God. So if they had immediately entered the church, they would have not seen it as a sovereign act of the mercy of God. Right. They would have thought, we deserved it. We've been so good. We followed all your commandments. We've done what you asked. 
Now we get our well-earned reward. And you see that attitude in the New Testament, mea culpa, mea culpa, don't want to bang the microphone, mea culpa. So the Jews had to go through a, disobedi- a period of disobedience so that when they were brought into the church, they would also recognize it as a sovereign act of the mercy of God and not anything they could possibly have deserved or earned. Mm. As St. Paul said, God has consigned all men to disobedience that he may have mercy upon all. The Gentiles' period of disobedience was before the first coming. The Jews' period of disobedience was between the first and second coming. But... Um, Anyway, so that is the reason for Everybody the Everybody following plan. along out there? Are you getting all this? <laughs> Go ahead. Um, so, um, uh, but let me point out something in this verse. St. Paul is talking to the Gentiles. Just as you were once disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience, so they have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may receive mercy by the mercy shown to you. In other words, the only way the Jews will get into the church is by the mercy shown to you. Mm. In other words, by the Gentiles in the church. By the Gentiles in the church evangelizing the Jews, by the Gentiles in the church sharing the faith with the Jews. As St. Paul earlier says, so as to make Israel jealous, because believe me, speaking as a Jew, mm-hmm. <laughs> if any Jew knew what's available in the church, they would be jealous. Everybody in their heart yearns for God, yearns for relationship with God. I would like to say, perhaps even the Jew more than others, because they're kind of God-centered and God-oriented. If they knew what was available, what the Gentiles had every day when they received Holy Communion, then it would make Israel jealous. So St. Paul is saying, they have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, by the Gentiles in the church, by their evangelization, by their sharing the faith, and by their prayer for the conversion of the Jews, they also may receive mercy. So just as the entire Gentile world received the greatest gift it ever received through the intercession of the Jews 2,000 years ago, before the second coming, it's time for the Jews to receive the greatest gift that they will ever receive through the intercession of the Gentiles, through the Gentiles in the church. So that's why God arranged this incredibly beautiful back and forth in this history of salvation. Sounds like it makes sense. Yeah, we have a few minutes. So what I want you to do is I want you to kind of wrap it all up and give it to us in layman's terms because I, as a uh, pretty simple Catholic guy, um, I'm getting it all, but it's pretty complex. And I would have never read that. So it's it's fascinating to hear you say what you're saying. Well, I, I don't want to disappoint your audience, but... This was, putting it in a nutshell, you should hear me talk three hours about this. Oh, I so I don't know how much, how much, um, more concise I can get. Ask, yeah. ask me a question, make it easier for me to um, narrow down. I think, you know, it, are we at this point in life? Do we know that, you know, we're coming into this point where Jews are coming back into the church? Oh, that's a very good question. And there are two dimensions to that. One is, are we at the point where we can expect the second coming to be near? And second of all, do we see an entry of Jews into the church? And um, I actually think the answer to both of those questions is yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, I referred to the great apostasy. Basically, the Catechism of the Council of Trent uh, names three other things besides the conversion of the Jews that have to precede the second coming. Um, there has to be a widespread falling away from the faith. I think you're seeing that now. Europe used to be the Holy Roman Empire. 
that used to you not used to not be able to be a ruler in Europe without being crowned by the Pope, right? In any of the countries right, of Europe. Right. Now, in the new European Constitution, they won't even mention the historical uh, importance of Christianity to the culture of Europe. Here, so, mm-hmm. um, I think we you could argue that we're seeing the Great Apostasy, which is one of the things the Catechism of the Council of Trent names has to happen before the Second Coming. Mm-hmm. Um, it also says that the gospel has to be spread throughout the four corners of the earth. You're doing your part for that, but I think that with, um, I think we're seeing that, especially with the internet and radio and television. It's been spread throughout Africa. It's pretty much been spread throughout China. Um, and um, finally, the coming of the Antichrist. And uh, my personal favorite contender for that was, would be this, uh, this elderly Hungarian billionaire who shall remain nameless, yeah. but seems to be against a lot of the anti-Christian initiatives in the world. Yeah. Um, but anyway, anyone's guess as to who the Antichrist might be. But yeah, I do think that it would be legitimate to think we're coming on the times of the Second Coming. Crazy. And Messianic Judaism is a sign of the conversion of the Jews. Um, not so many coming into the Catholic Church, but hundreds of thousands, uh, millions coming into faith in Jesus I spoke to a uh, Messianic Jewish woman in Israel who said there isn't a, a town or a city in Israel without a Messianic Jewish congregation. Wow. Now in the United States, there's about one Messianic Jew for every two strictly religious Jews. There are at least a quarter million Messianic Jews in the United States. I think, and that movement emerged in the late 60s. It was unknown before then. So yeah, I think we're seeing a widespread conversion of the Jews. And tragically... Um, a relatively small percentage find their way to the Catholic Church, and I think that's in large part because the Catholic Church is a little bit too politically correct to want to evangelize yeah. the Jews, and I'm doing all I can to try to yeah. overcome that. Well, that brings us pretty much to the end of the episode of the Catholic Shepherd television show that I recently uh, recorded obviously for television, but you've been listening to the audio of it. There was a little babbling after where the show cut off, but nothing substantial. And so we have come to the end of our podcast of Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism with Roy Shulman, usually aired on Radio Maria. But because this was already a replaying of a recorded show and the telephone calls that came in stretched it, to longer than could fit in the one-hour radio slot. For radio purposes, the discussion will continue in a second week, uh, but I thought that for podcast purposes, it was more sensible to do things this way. So in any case, thank you for listening, and I hope you continue to listen to these podcasts. This is Roy Showman saying bye for now.